Hello and welcome to YHTV's nominated show, Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 91. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Souza Ma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Hello, Christina. Wonderful day today. Absolutely. How can yeah. we, I mean, how can it not be? I know. This is I, sunny California. <laughs> yeah. Hope that uh, people watching us back east can watch the show and, and just feel some of the light and happiness that we're feeling right now in the beautiful weather that we're having and mm. sending our blessings to everyone else that's not having this beautiful weather. But on the other hand, we don't get to have those wonderful seasons that you all love. So yeah. uh, we miss that part of it. And we're in the middle of a drought again. <laughs> no, that's, that's not good. <sighs> Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we travel through uh, the healthcare galaxy, searching in another quadrant for optimal health. We have a very special guest with us today, Christina, Dr. Edward Gilbert. He's a uh, board-certified radiation oncologist, and oncology has to do with cancer, and radiation has to do with a special treatment of cancer. Uh, he graduated from Stanford University. He's been uh, the director of many cancer programs and uh, leading-edge medical centers, including Stanford Medical Center, Eisenhower, and National Cancer Institute. He is currently a director of two radiation units in two hospitals in uh, Texas. But he also has other parts to him that are very important in the practice of medicine, which we like here on Magical Medical Tour. He has created one of the first hospital-based psycho-emotional programs, and this is based on the work of Carl Simonton, Dr. Simonton. He also uh, is very much involved in creating and developing the role of integrative oncology uh, in the daily practice of medicine. And he uses something which we're going to talk about a little later, creative expression in healing. And one of the things that happened to uh, Dr. Gilbert is he himself came down with and was diagnosed with a cancer. And part of uh, today's show, we will find out how he made the choices and what it meant to him and what he did for his therapy. So before we introduce him, Christina, I would like to uh, have our viewers know how they can send in comments or questions for us or Dr. Gilbert. Thanks, Glenn. Um, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen if you're watching this and typing it into the comment box um, <clears throat> at any time because we will make sure we will get those comments over to our special guest or Dr. Woolman and uh, reply to you. Now, if you are listening to this through a podcast, you can actually give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Be sure to refer to the program that you're watching and who the comment is, our question is for and uh, your uh, contact information so that we can at least reply to um, what that might be. We will make sure that your question is, again is posted to whomever it is to go to. So at any time, please feel free. We are always uh, loving those questions that come in because it, it really helps uh, all of us and also uh, the global community grow and, and continue to be knowledgeable of uh, the next step in life. Thank you, Glenn. 
Uh, you're welcome, Christina. And that is important for us. That's the whole goal of this show is to help our global community become to become knowledgeable. I also wanted to mention that Dr. Gilbert, aside from being a Dr. Gilbert, is also author Gilbert, uh, photographer Gilbert, musician Gilbert, uh, poet Gilbert, and so many other Gilbert uh, parts. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Edward Gilbert to our audience and to you, Christina. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. Good Hello, to be here. Dr. Gilbert. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very Dallas, excited. I love integrative medicine. So Dallas, Texas, you were going to ask. Dallas, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> what on not, earth are you doing in Dallas, Texas? <laughs> not, not being a Cowboys fan, and we'll land it right there. Okay. Dr. Gilbert <laughs> is also a an intuitive and a uh, psychic, uh, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my my real purpose in life is to be the backup Philly fanatic. So, uh, <laughs> and and that that's all I need to say. But you can ask questions otherwise. I, you know, if you're going to be the Philly fanatic, then I would have to ask you, where's the best Philly cheesesteak sandwich? Well, you know, that is absolutely funny. Uh, I went with two urologists from Austin uh, in <laughs> early September to see three Phillies games, Atlanta and Philly. And we decided at four in the afternoon after uh, driving around that we would test all four of the major places. So within two hours, we went to four cheesesteak <laughs> places and, and raided them. And it was Chubby's, Geno's, Pat's, and Jim's. And believe it or not, Chubby's in Manioc got the number one spot. So <laughs> wow. I, I think we're the only people in the world that, would, that ate four cheesesteaks at four different places in less than two hours. In all... Oh. <laughs> I'm wondering if we should. That's the loaded question right there. I mean, claim fame right there. Every one of my questions are going to be loaded. <laughs> Ed, usually as the medical guide, I like to give our uh, global viewers an idea of where we're going to go in the show. And of course, uh, I already know that I may lose control at any moment. <laughs> So first, we're going to start with just learning a little bit about you, the heart and soul of Ed, and how you became what you are. And we're going to talk about getting into some serious topics about cancer itself. Then I want to talk about your role in cancer in terms of radiation uh, oncology. And then we want to go into some of the other parts of what you do related to medicine and healing. And and then we'll find out maybe a few other special parts of it by the end of the show. How's that sound to you? Sounds wonderful. Okay, so let's start right away with basically and briefly, how, when, why did you get interested in medicine? And then we'll talk about your interest in specializing in radiation oncology. Well, you know, uh, there are two ways of approach it. Uh, I'm almost 70 years old, and I have very little left to lose because uh, <laughs> I've been 48 years in medicine. And uh, so I'm going to be uh, totally honest today about these things. And, and it will surprise people because, you know, here I am, quote, a famous doctor with all these credentials. And yet the real motives for doing things, I think, is what life's about. You ask why I became a doctor. I was afraid to swim. And my mother said to me in 12th grade, she says, you know, if you went into the army uh, as a doctor, you wouldn't need to swim. 
and and that's what made me go from business. <laughs> business so I, you know, but the other part was it was when I'd call up girls for dates, I could say I was going to be a doctor, and they'd go out with me, which worked very well for the first date. But I after that didn't work. But but that's the real reason. I mean, so what am I to say? You know, I chose it for. Uh, personal social reasons, and of course, my mother suggested it. I'm a good Jewish doctor who followed his mother's wishes, and and so that's the honesty of it. Uh, becoming a doctor, my son is pre med now at Penn, and and I say to him, you know, are you sure? And he he is. He's doing it for reasons that are uh, I think much firmer than mine. Uh, but I did become a doctor, and I was put where I needed to be, and. Uh, in retrospect, I'm glad my mother said that because being a business lawyer uh, is not really what I'm about. Did uh, swimming help you in your dating? Uh, well, the fact I didn't have to swim, you see, and I did go into the Air Force as a doctor captain and never had to go through basic training and learn how to swim. And uh, I did eventually learn how to swim, but that was a driving for a great fear in my life was swimming. I almost drowned a few times as a kid. And so so once again, you know, you when you ask people their real motives behind it, you can get a great story that pumps up the ego, or you can get the true story as to why we are who we are. And and it does reflect in the fact that patients are dealing with doctors with an assumption about who they are. And if you dig deep enough, there's a lot of different strange motives of why that particular person is in front of you as a patient. Uh, and so assumptions about them being globally uh, balanced and, and committed and everything uh, is, is often misleading and often disappointing. What we are are trained technicians. We're not trained as humanists. And that has created a great problem in our profession. I agree. And, and within that, as a segue, you went into uh, a specialty uh, that really requires humanity. Well, you know, that, that's another strange story. I, I grew up with a great interest in parapsychology and psychic phenomena, which I experienced from age seven, and uh, was really involved with a lot of uh, pioneers of this whole arena when I was 22, 23 years old. The reason I went into oncology was not oncology, but because of, of the physics of radiation, because I wanted mm -hmm. to follow the whole energy system, the, the, what I had learned about uh, our souls and, and how uh, this other phenomena, this other reality exists on our plane. So again, my motive was uh, to continue my core interest, and it just so happened it was radiation, and that's used to treat cancer. Uh, so, so that was the motive behind that. Boy, this is a, every answer now I'm going off and thinking, I don't want to ask the other questions well, I had to ask. Glenn, he's giving you loaded answers now. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're filled with energy and radiation. We may even want to talk about, uh, where the soul fits on the, on the spectrum of energies and radiation and ultraviolet light and radio frequency, but maybe we'll get into that at uh, as we move along. Wait a minute, that's the other show, Glenn. You have oh. to stick to medicine, sorry. <laughs> well, I, I, actually, that is medicine. As far as I'm concerned, that is the core of all of this, mm -hmm. is, is the journey of the soul, and especially with cancer. And you ask why cancer, ultimately, 
Well, Carl Simonton and I became best friends, and that was dealing with the psycho-emotional aspects of cancer. And then eventually I did work with people like uh, Brew Joy and Richard Moss about the energies and how that affected healing and cancer. And they even, uh, uh, through the 90s, was involved in studying uh, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, etc., and I've kind of uh, put it all together in a sense. And, and it really is a soul journey. And, and often we, we might have to ask, uh, there's a technical side to cancer, and then there's the emotional, psychological side. But ultimately, it's really a, a soul journey issue. And uh, I can speak a lot about that through my own journey through prostate cancer nine years ago. So we're, we are going to get into that, and I want to, and I really do want to get into the emotional soul journey. But as we start out, and as I promised our audience, I want to bring uh, some of the technology into what's going on first. Uh, how about a definition of cancer? We all talk about cancer. We hear about cancer. It's a scary word. I always say to people, cancer is a word, not a sentence. But I want your definition of cancer. Uh, saying it now, I'd say a, a cell in the body that's gone, uh, gone wild and, uh, is not under the control of the normal, uh, physiologic feedbacks of the body. Uh, it, it exists within a milieu that's broken down being the immunological system or the ability to fight the disease itself. So cancer is a cell through mutation through uh, environmental changes, whatever that's created that's not under control. And, and often people will, will say, what is it about cancer that brings such panic and fear? And the best answer I heard a number of years ago was, it's a cell in our body, it's our own cell that's out to kill us. And, uh, and that's where the, the shock and the fear. Everybody who has been diagnosed with cancer will talk about the shock of it. And if you've never been diagnosed with cancer, you have no idea what that word means. But something changes the minute that happens, and I think it's the threat that your own body is trying to destroy you. Yeah, and as you alluded to, normally we talk on this program a lot about the cellular level of the body, and cells themselves have their own intrinsic programs that when they get old enough, they die and reproduce newer, healthier cells. But as you say, those mechanisms to allow them to die get shut down, or for various reasons, uh, they get shut down and, and changes happen, and this gets out of control. I, I've seen that many times when I've had to tell someone they had cancer for the first time, and that was uh, rare in the emergency department, but sometimes I did have to do that. And you could see, as you're looking into the eyes of the person, something changes, and it's almost uh, consistent with the possibility that from that moment on, they don't hear anything else I say for a few moments, and it's very difficult for them. So what do we have in this country to know about the statistics of cancer? Uh, how many, I heard something the other day that said one out of every two men in the United States may have cancer, and one out of three women may come down with the cancer. What are your statistics on that? Um, there's a, a story that uh, was told to me uh, by the Inspector General of the United States uh, when he was asked the question, uh, how much fraud occurs in the billing system? And he said, look, he's a lawyer, and he said, it's fraud. How do I know? 
And it's the same, it's the same answer with cancer. You know, how do you know, you know, we, for instance, we were going through a, uh, a series of pullbacks on screening for prostate cancer because mm-hmm. it is said that 80, 85% of men, if they live to the age 80, you can find prostate cancer. Most of them don't grow. Some, some do, of course. And, uh, so we're not even testing with PSAs now unless we have to. Over the age of 70, it's been pulled back. I mean, the statistic is all about uh, your ability to screen for it, to test for it. PSA testing was 1986. I started my residency in 1972. We detected prostate cancer. It was a big lump. And so we have no idea how many uh, seven, eight years before small prostate cancers never evolved to that lump and was never, were never diagnosed. Same with breast cancer. Mammography came, became good in 1984-85. Prior to that, it was rarely diagnosed uh, early. Uh, so there is no easy answer to this. How, how much do you want to look for cancer or not will determine that number. So I'm not even going to throw out a number. I wouldn't justify uh, the great statisticians on this uh, with, with an answer because you can look it up and and see how many die of cancer and diagnose, but it doesn't mean anything. What uh, should we be doing in this country in terms of our own health and relating it to cancer? Should we be doing preventive things? Should we be improving diets and exercise and meditation? Should we have screenings? Yes. There's no question that a better lifestyle uh, can prevent cancer. There's no question that cigarette smoking is a problem and and alcohol for head and neck cancer and and on and on. Um, And and the proper diets, sure, they help. And exercise, definitely, and meditation. Uh, How much? Hard to say, but I think significantly. so all that's important that you live a healthy lifestyle, whether or not it's to prevent cancer or just to live the, the normal lifestyle that's healthy. And, uh, and so that's what I want to say about it. Yes, it's absolutely important. And there's lots of great programs. And the healthier you are, the more likely your immune system will fight off cancer cells that develop. That's, that would be my general answer to a very specific question. Okay, let's get into uh, some general questions on radiation oncology. So a person comes uh, to the doctor, they have a problem, they get worked up, and eventually they come down with some kind of cancer. And there are many different types of cancers. There are cancers, almost every cell in the body, I'm guessing, can cause or form into a cancerous neoplasm. Uh, Would you agree with that? Yes. So if we have that, we get the diagnosis, and after the person goes through their shock period, the doctor starts talking to them about options. Now, of course, the person is immediately thinking that they're terminal, what do they have to do? And they're usually presented with uh, a number of options in terms of how to treat it. What are the options that we have right now for treating a cancer? Um. The most common options would be surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy uh, or hormonal therapy in breast and prostate. Uh, And and often now a lot of the cancers use at least two, if not all three of the modalities. I think most of the breakthroughs that have occurred is the combination of modalities that all potentiate uh, the others. Um, 
So it, it's fairly uncommon. Not many of the cancers now are treated by just one modality, but all three of, of or two of the three. They all seem to be scary. And you know, nobody likes to hear that they're going to have surgery, but at least in surgery, they, they seem to know that they're going in, they're put to sleep, they have things cut out, things are tuned up and changed around, and then they wake up and heal from that. But chemotherapy and radiation therapy seem to have uh, their own uh, processes that are related almost more to side effects than, than the surgery has side effects. Uh, can we talk about chemotherapy for just a few minutes? Uh, why sure. do people worry about chemotherapy and why do they choose chemotherapy? Well, as you started to say, every cell of the body uh, can become a cancer. Every organ produces a number of different cell type cancers. And so the treatments are totally related to that. Uh, if you're talking about chemotherapy, you have to talk about which particular cancer is a combination of chemotherapies. Some drugs are less toxic than others. And uh, so many protocols, so many good studies have been done through the years that have shown which of the combinations work the best under different staging circumstances, the appropriateness of them. Uh, so, so again, that's part of it. If you have a, a type of cancer that mild chemotherapy uh, is used, 5-FU is an example of a milder chemotherapy, then, then fine. You know, the side effects will be less and uh, people tolerate it well. If you have to have a, a very extensive combination with the toxicity, it's a whole different story. That said, uh, in all fairness to the specialty, since the early 1990s, an incredible array of uh, treatments to reduce side effects have been developed. Zofran for nausea and vomiting, Decadron steroids for less side effects, and I, I just a whole host of them. And so chemotherapy is a lot easier than it was back then. And people are tolerating it better. It can be pretty toxic. And then again, it can be fairly mild. Everyone's different. And this, again, getting back to prevention, there are uh, many natural remedies now, meditation, an example, nutrition, exercise that reduce the side effects of chemotherapy. So, so it's become something where integrative medicine can help you tolerate uh, the particular chemotherapy so much better. Uh, and one, one girl that, that I treated in Denver in, in late uh, 70s, and Mary Margaret was her name, uh, she, she did everything, and she had the most toxic chemotherapy for an advanced ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, and uh, she had no side effects, none. Uh, and we all were amazed that the toxic drugs that she had with zero side effects in an advanced cancer uh, was, was, uh, there were no side effects. So, so a lot can be done now to reduce that. Uh, yes, sometimes it is toxic and I don't want to minimize it, but we've got the whole host of responses now. It's, uh, it's actually been wonderful. One of the great parts for me about being in the field of medicine is it's always a frontier. And I know when we first started out in chemotherapy, the five FU or the five fluorouracil, uh, it was one of the main uh, treatment choices. And now 
there's so many advances in chemotherapy that they're working on different parts of the cell, not just the whole cancer cell and not every cell around it, but specific parts of a cell. And it's becoming really laser focused for me. Uh, and I really love seeing that part of it. Now I want to get into uh, what you do. And that's the third option that we talked about, aside from surgery and chemotherapy, is radiation therapy. Mm -hmm. Now, people uh, always hear about radiation and all of the bad side effects. And in fact, radiation itself can cause cancer. So to take something that can cause cancer and then be able to control it into something that heals it, how did that happen? Um, well, first I want to say radiation is a great specialty. And uh, we're able to do uh, a lot of good things because uh, we're focused. Uh, there's a, there's a mass and we're trying to get rid of it, you know, so, uh, and often now we can treat localized disease and cure it. Um, it's, it's the technology of radiation has improved dramatically where we have intensity modulated radiation that can curve the beam around critical structures and, and allow us to do a focused radiation. Uh, one of my specialties is brain uh, radiation, uh, one of the early ones to use a piece of equipment named the Novalis. In fact, in um, Richardson, Texas, we were the Lance Armstrong Center, and I don't know if that's an area of pride or, or not. At the time, it was great pride. Uh, but uh, Brain Lab and the Novalis was one of the first units. We could pinpoint um, tumors in the brain with one millimeter of accuracy and avoid the critical structures uh, in incredible ways. And so I watched from 1972 where our equipment was good at, at Stanford to uh, in the last 15 years having this radiosurgical uh, piece of equipment or the gamma knife or others that, that allow us that kind of precision. So that said, uh, we made major breakthroughs by reducing the normal organs being treated while we were able to treat the tumor. Uh, giving higher doses with less side effects and just curing more people uh, because of this technology. It's it's a great field that way. When you use the word cure, and I've seen uh, in many cases nowadays, a lot of people are going away from the word cure and using remission. Where do you stand on that? Well, I, I don't know who's doing that, but they don't know what they're talking about. I'm sorry to say there are plenty <laughs> of cures. And, um, Part of the terminology is this. Um, this will help the confusion. Um, there are certain types of cancer we don't like to use the word cure because it could return in 15 or 20 years. So we, we say uh, it's in remission. Uh, and in actuality, it most likely is cured. Breast cancer is one of the uh, most common diseases, uh, even prostate cancer, where you say remission rather than cure. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, early stage prostate or middle stage prostate cancer, the cure rate is 90% at 10 years. Well, that means 10% can still recur. So do you call everyone cured or they're in remission at 10 years? So it's a terminology thing where the majority of those people are actually cured, but you don't like to use that term. Uh, brain tumors often are remission terms. Uh, take, though, what Lance Armstrong had, which was a testicular cancer, uh, an aggressive one, in which if people don't recur within three years, they don't recur. So you can use the word cure in the sense that three years later, it's not back, therefore it won't come back. 
So again, you have to take each type of cancer and uh, just see how people want to term it, but it's it gets tricky that way. Well, yes, I agree with that. Excellent answer. So one of the things to let me understand now is one of the concerns that people have is they have a tumor inside of their abdomen or in their chest somewhere, and they're thinking that this beam is going through their entire body, and every part of the body that touches the beam is going to have some kind of an effect from that. But what you're, at least what I'm getting as an understanding now, is you can now focus a beam, curve it around things, and not have it react to, say, the skin or organs that are going below until it hits the actual organ and the cells around the neoplasm? The, uh, the response to that is uh, it still goes through those normal tissues. It just doesn't give as high a dose. And every organ of the body has uh, dose tolerances. So if you keep well below what, what is a critical dose, you won't have a side effect to that organ. That doesn't mean it didn't receive some radiation. It mm-hmm. certainly does. Uh, so the curvature has allowed uh, more of a focusing uh, proton beam, uh, gives off all of its energy within the tumor, but still 50% it is giving off as on the way to the 100%, uh, and on and on. So uh, yes, the normal tissues get it, but they can tolerate it. That's the key. Now, that said, you one of the questions you were going to ask about were secondary cancers, cancers that were caused by radiation. And uh, we know that anyone irradiated under the age of 30 or 35 has a, a, a risk, a real risk of the radiation causing a mutation that will appear to be a cancer five to 30 years later. Uh, usually after you get past 40 or 45, that risk is pretty low. Uh, but it is a real risk in the younger pe- people. And, and I watched a whole change in trend of irradiating children uh, at Stanford where they had Hodgkin's disease. And uh, they, they started to go away from radiation because knowing the incidence of uh, induced cancers was getting too high, especially when some chemo was used along with it. Uh, so there was more of a trend towards chemo in the years that I was a resident in 72 to 75. So uh, again, there's a recognition. Um, I was involved with uh, what was called at the time the breast cancer prevention trial that with tamoxifen, uh, our group at Eisenhower actually raised the money for that trial. And it was all about working with the women at Chernobyl who were exposed to certain doses of radiation who we knew had a high risk of getting breast cancer 20 to 30 years later. And there was actually a test, there is a test that the Army has in the Berkeley lab that can test exactly what dose of radiation uh, through a lifetime people were exposed to. It's still classified test, but we had access to it. And uh, we were going to be uh, studying the women at Chernobyl to see which ones actually had the exposure to the radiation. We were able to measure that. That trial never came to pass, but it sure allowed more data about the fluoroscopy studies in the 40s and uh, the atomic bomb studies uh, to start to show there was a real risk. And then the early Hodgkin's patients with radiation 20, 30 years later getting head and neck cancers or breast cancer. So, so there is a real risk uh, for the younger <clears throat> people, uh, minimal risk once you get above 40. I remember when I was a child, uh, we used to go in when we got new shoes, we would put yes. our feet in this program. Do I yes. have to be worrying about that at this point? 
Well, I, I actually had a, a, a little wart on my uh, one of my toes, and I had radiation for that, and there's still a, a little discoloration there. And every now and then I check to see if my toe's still there. But, you know, it's uh, <laughs> I don't know how much we have to worry about it. I, yeah. I, you know, it's a good question that, that I take personally in that sense. So. <laughs> so we now, a person gets diagnosed with cancer, and they're, they're immediately sent from their... Uh, primary care doctor to a specialist, like an oncologist. And the oncologist goes through a program with the patient where they get worked up and they do what they call staging. Would you describe that for a moment? Uh, let's take a, a situation like breast cancer. That's a good one. A uh, person comes in, they have a lump in the breast. Uh, often they undergo lumpectomy and they uh, they're tested for whether any of the lymph nodes in their axilla are positive because that will determine a lot around the chemotherapy recommended, even the radiation to some degree. Uh, so the staging is local to take out the tumor, regional to see spread to lymph nodes, and then distant because there's a real risk of spread to bone and liver and even brain and lungs. So uh, PET scanning is now a, a good test that the, the sugar analog is taken up in tumor cells, uh, and and so one is staged often with something like that to see uh, just the location. Once you know whether the disease is most likely local or regional or distant also, then a therapy plan is worked out. And that therapy plan usually includes the choices of surgery, chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, radiation therapy. How does one make a choice with their physician about these? What's the process that someone should go through to become active in this rather than just always listening to the physician? As you talked about earlier, uh, this is all about the soul. So each person has to have their soul included in the treatment. How do they make those choices? Well, your question is, is really a great question, uh, more than you can imagine. Um, Recognizing the issues around this, I started back in 1985 to develop an information program where you can put in the variables and get uh, definite recommendations of appropriateness to different treatments. And it's about ready to come to fruition, believe it or not, almost 30 years later. Uh, that said, it, it's sort of like a, a roulette table or a, you know, a dice thing where you go and it depends on the bias of the physicians that you're talking to, their training, whether they uh, like a certain treatment or not. Uh, we went in prostate cancer. They go to a urologist for years, they would say only surgery works, and then suddenly it was only radiation working. And same with breast cancer. So there's a lot of bias around where a person was trained, their own experience, and it's a very, very difficult thing for patients uh, to go against the first doctor that they see in that recommendation. That said, having an objective information program uh, that's approved of by the majority of the professional community will help patients tremendously get a, a less biased picture. Often there are many ways to skin a cat, and, uh, and I'm remembering a, a story from Denver. Uh, Helen Wright was her name. Her husband was a United uh, DC-10 pilot. 1976, I just started out of my residency, and she called me up. She was my neighbor, and she said, uh, Ed, uh, I just diagnosed with breast cancer. I don't, I don't want to lose my breast. And I said, well, uh, there are some people doing lumpectomies and radiation. 
and particularly in Europe and Canada, and she elected to go that route. That was 1976. The majority of women now have lumpectomy and radiation. So what has changed between 1976 and probably 1996 was to go from almost 0% to probably 80 to 90%, and totally around the bias, because the Europeans already had been doing it for 20 years. So, so one has to understand that uh, an objective way of looking at your options mean that you visit more than one uh, clinician and get different uh, ideas, and then you, you do your own research a little bit, or a lot. Yeah, a lot. <clears throat> you were diagnosed with cancer in 2004. Did you, when you heard the <laughs> diagnosis, did you go through that same shock? Did you find yourself as a physician and say, oh, yes, uh, I know what to do? Or did you become well, a human? I, uh, yeah, human there. Um, I denied an abnormal PSA for nearly four years. Wow. wow. Good work. I, yeah, no, I, I, it's no way I'm going to get diagnosed with cancer. And prostate <laughs> was, was prostate and brain were my two specialties. So I did not want to know. And then suddenly, uh, three years later, it popped up to, from 3.9 to 5.9. When normal was four in those days, it's probably 2.5 now. And uh, I was under 60. I was 59. And I remember going to Las Vegas to visit a colleague of mine who, uh, I won't mention his name, but he was uh, to Senior Bush, like Carl Rove is to Junior Bush, and advised Reagan and Bush and presidents and governors and senators. And and I sat there, and he was so proud that his PSA was low, and I told him what mine was. And he pointed his finger at me, and he said, you will get it checked. And I understood why he was a presidential advisor, and I wasn't. <laughs> I, mean, I, I ran home quicker than you can imagine on the plane and, and had a urologist do a biopsy right away. And, and what happened was I was standing in my office, and a phone call came on a Monday morning, and the nurse said, uh, we have your result. Uh, would you like me to fax it to you? I said, sure. I said, I guess it's okay. Right. And she said, well, let me fax it to you. Well, I can tell you now, never let anyone use that term because the fear, just say it's normal or abnormal. Don't do that to somebody because you stand mm. over the fax machine going crazy. And then you, I got the report and I'm half colorblind. I don't see red real well, red, red, green. And the first two lines is where the diagnosis was. But I saw the next 10 lines, which were normal. And then suddenly my eyes focused on the top two lines, Gleason 7, adenocarcinoma of the prostate. And I just stood there for at least 10 minutes and didn't move. And I still remember that moment. The shock is beyond belief. There's no way it could be me. There's no way it could be me. And I was, from that point on, never the same. So you had to then make choices, and you're a radiation oncologist. Oh, yeah, yeah. My choices were a little bit easy, you know, as far as, <laughs> you know, what was I going to do? I, you know, I, I believed in radiation. I had the newest equipment with the Novalis, the first IMRT unit in Dallas to treat this. And of course I was going to do radiation. I, I already knew that my life would end quickly if I didn't, because all my patients would come and probably kill me. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not probably. They would have, you know, so my, my, my longevity would have been minutes, but uh, I believed in it. And, and uh, so I went ahead with it. And I planned my own treatment. Someone else signed off on it, but I planned my own treatment. And, uh, and a lot of people, you know, used to say, wow. And I'd go around giving talks for a brain lab on, on the fact, you know, I designed this special treatment for myself, et cetera. 
But uh, for me, it became kind of an interesting moment in time. Uh, socially, things changed. I don't want to go into details because that's a little too personal, but uh, had, around my marriage and stuff. And, um, and how well I was taken care of by my staff. You know, it was uh, amazing. And 1130, I'd go back to take my nap on the table for 43 times. Uh, in fact, in the sixth week of treatment, I went back, I laid down and my tech walked in, Melissa said, Dr. Gilbert, you're in here for a treatment. Could you loosen your belt? <laughs> I went, oh, I was in there for my nap. So, so what, <laughs> happens, what happens is a routine evolves and, and, and the treatment was quite reasonable. And, uh, and I tell these stories to people. One, as soon as they know I'm a cancer patient, everything changes between us. And mm-hmm. two, to make them feel better, recognizing there are certain treatments that are easier than others, and prostate's fairly easy, and, and telling them about the NAP story or, or others along the way really help them feel that they'll be okay. And, um, and so the blessing I had was to have cancer and be able to then uh, have people know that, one, I understand it, and two, they're going to be okay. Now, not everyone is, but when you start, you want to leave a lot of hope open for people. Prostate the result is very good. They come in with lung. It's not as good. But, but you don't take away hope. You dare not take away hope. Any doctor who walks in and gives someone a, a length of time to live early on in a diagnosis should be shot. I should they no be shot problem. with a bullet or radiation? I'll do it with the radiation. I have no problem. I'll do it with the bullet. but you you don't do that to people because you don't know uh it's different at the end when they failed everything when they're dying of metastatic disease and it's fair to say you need to get your uh your personal things in order uh you'll probably only have another month or whatever that's fair but not early on because i've seen all kinds of miracles and working with carl simonton for all those years with the psycho-emotional he had a whole list of people that were supposed to be dead who were alive 10, 15 years later. Mm. So. You know, one, one of the things also that uh, I would like you to mention for a moment is when we're thinking radiation now, we're thinking of a beam coming out of something, but there's also other types of radiation treatments. There are needles that are inserted. Uh, can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, there, there, there are a variety of ways of delivering the radiation. The external radiation is through a linear accelerator uh, nowadays proton beam accelerator. Uh, but like head and neck cancer, uh, you can boost the, uh, the area of involvement with the putting in uh, implants, radioactive material, uh, mm-hmm. certainly still in uh, cervix cancer and gynecologic cancers of the uterus, uh, having part of it through insertion of special devices. And uh, so there are a lot of ways of delivering radiation. Um, the trend has been towards external because of our our abilities to uh, focus the beam and curve it. Prior to that, the best way of delivering high-dose radiation was putting the active material right into the tumor. So that's, that's shifted some. It's obviously easier when you don't have to do surgical procedures for patients. When I started my integrative medicine program, a hospital-based integrative medicine program, I found that the oncologists as a group of specialists seem to be the ones that uh, came toward it more clearly, uh, seemed to be the ones that were interested. There were many that fought it that, as you know, and in being involved in integrative medicine, why do you think the oncologists are the ones that 
that uh, embrace it more quickly than the others. You mean other specialties? Basically. Other specialties. And if that's not your experience, uh, then yeah, say it. Um, boy, uh, you know, it gets back to uh, the seriousness of having a heart attack or the seriousness of having an infection. Uh, it's not treated the same way, whereas um, cancer, again, is, is a life-threatening issue, which then starts to deal with the family and the psyche and everything like that. So I think there's just an appreciation of the spectrum of life within the context of cancer as opposed to other diseases. You know, one of the ones that I uh, think that needs to be approached that way is diabetes. It's the number one problem in the world, and yet it's amazing how we don't treat it like we would treat a cancer patient. It's as serious, if not more so in certain cases, uh, you know, a person's lifestyle, their, their ability to adjust to life, uh, the side effects from the diabetes and the treatments. Uh, so that said, I think it's, again, uh, our specialty sees life as uh, a real phenomena of the spectrum of life as opposed to an organ that's gone awry. Oh, very so, good answer. Yeah. I like that. So let's talk about integrative medicine and how it applies to your practice. What does it uh, mean to you in terms of integrative medicine? When I started in Denver, uh, I created what was known as the Cancer Self-Help Program. It was based uh, a lot on Carl Simonton's work on, on the issues uh, emotionally that people deal with, secondary gains of disease, stress in your life, purpose in life. And, and having people really get together and, and process these life issues really made a difference. Uh, the quality of life, uh, in some cases even the quantity. Um, so, so integrative also included nutrition and exercise back in those days, and um, the energy work that I d described has been more of a phenomenon of of the last twenty years, where there's been appreciation of all these different energy modalities. I mean, you know, you can talk about acupuncture as an energy modality, and and, and different machineries, and, and uh, chakra opening chakras, energy bodies. Uh, that, that has its own uh, quality to an integrative approach. Uh, so many people have now experienced, we have a massage therapist here who is also a Reiki and uh, craniosacral healer and whatever. And through the massage session, she can just open people's blocked energy bodies and make them feel better and maybe affect the disease on some level. Uh, so, so the integrative approach has changed uh, a lot. There's more modalities, but the overall idea is what are you going to deal with in your life? You know, you start at what I call the base level, which is nutrition, uh, and move, move, you know, vitamins, minerals, herbs, other specials, up to exercise, to, to certainly the psycho-emotional, and then the energy work, and then the soul work. So, so you've got a lot of levels to work on, and people usually will pick one or two that, that feels right to them. Uh, just doing something itself is proactive is important. The specific thing also depends on the healer, the one who's delivering the modality. And often I will say, you know, there's books that you can open that have 350 different types of energy healing. 
And I often say, it doesn't matter which one, who's, who's delivering it, because that's where the, the real transfer of the energy comes from, is from the other. So, so it's a very complicated area. Uh, and, you know, uh, one of the things I'm involved with, with the different academies now of integrative medicine, is to try to get a handle on, on uh, some solid recommendations, because people don't know exactly what to do, albeit I have to say, again, a lot of what's out there does work it's just to what level and how much uh how much emphasis is on how do i put this um i don't know how to answer it maybe come back to me in a year or two i'm supposed to put together the research arm for uh two of the academies that are studying this in integrative medicine and uh, and trying to get a handle on, on how do you choose what. Most people do it, depends on their family or their own experiences. Doing something's important, what to do, it's a tough one. One of the interesting areas that people always ask me about, and when I research my literature, I'm about 50-50 on this, in terms of things like supplements and antioxidants and somebody that has cancer going through chemotherapy. Some say stop all the antioxidants, and the supplements because they will have an effect on the uh, chemotherapeutic agents. Others say uh, not really an issue. What's your thought? Well, uh, theoretically, radiation does needs oxygen to have its cell kill to create uh, radicals in the environment that uh, free radicals that affect the DNA the dividing. Uh, therefore, we often say with radiation, you're best going off the antioxidants during the radiation. It's theoretical. There's, there's no way of testing this very well. Uh, way back, there used to be a, a hyperoxygenation type of a treatment for cervix cancer. It's hard to prove things. Uh, so it's theoretical. Same with the chemos. Uh, yes, uh, you'll go into meetings and half will say, come off it. Others say, don't. I don't have an answer for that. Okay. <clears throat> Let's get into some of your other interests and relate them into medicine and healing and cancer. You work and uh, have created something called emotional expression and healing. Yes. Could you explain that to us? Sure, sure. Um, having, having experience in all these other arenas, uh, I said a couple of years ago, what's left? You know, uh, I don't need to repeat hundreds and even more patients going through different programs. Uh, what's left? And then I realized, for me, what was left was the evolution of my soul. I love Joseph Campbell's work, The Hero, uh, Hero's Journey. I think that, that the metaphor in life of the fact that we're on a, a soul's journey and uh, we have to slay dragons and, and learn lessons along the way are, uh, to, to me, what life's about. And, and my crises uh, come to me, my dragons come to me right on time, and I, um, I hate them. Uh, <laughs> I hate the hero's journey. I want reward at the end. I want my fair maiden, whatever the reward is. Uh, long story short, it's life. Uh, if you believe in a soul's, evolution, destiny, and purpose, then you have to believe that there's nothing by accident, that these are all tests. Uh, uh, cancer is often a warning that you're 
off track or maybe a warning that you actually need to have it to have the experience. Uh, so to me, uh, the art forms, the ability to express the soul through music, through photography, through art, through sculpture, uh, is a way of bypassing the intellect to let the soul speak directly and have an effect. And so I started to do uh, uh, composing, uh, also photography, and uh, putting together uh, slideshows with music and uh, hopefully allowing people to do a meditation that's, that's aided by uh, the beauty of the world that God has given us. I mean, uh, I had a chance to really travel to some special places in the last uh, period of time. Bhutan is a magnificent country. Uh, and the Himalayas, uh, uh, Machu Picchu is just so spiritual, it's beyond belief, and, and, and on and on. And, and what you see, I saw in the children of Bhutan, in their faces, uh, a joy because of, of the orientation of their culture towards happiness, towards working together. Uh, as a culture, and uh, and after doing that, uh, I realized that through these expressions, one can see what's going on in your own life and what can change uh, from the inside out. So, uh, so I I now perpetuate the art forms as a, a means of expression and discussion. When I work with cancer patients, sometimes near the end, they've already gone through multiple surgeries, they've had two or three bouts with chemotherapy and radiation therapy, the cancer's spreading, they're now on all sorts of medications because of pain, which is affecting them, and they're, they're just not feeling well all mm -hmm. the time. Uh, how do you get them to work on their emotional expression when they're exhausted, they're in pain, they're being affected uh, mentally by the medications they're on. How do you break through that and get them to do the emotional work? I, I want to do two, uh, give you two responses that come to mind. Uh, Victor Frankl's uh, book on logotherapy, the psychiatrist who was in Auschwitz and studied those who survived the uh, Holocaust in Auschwitz. And he said it was those who attached meaning to their suffering that were able to uh, go on with a quality of life or quantity of life that others didn't. I, th I really think that, it, that in the midst of that pain, if you can attach meaning to it, helping others, uh, communicating something that, that means something even beyond yourself, that's huge. And once you've attached meaning to your suffering, either from your own journey or helping others, the suffering goes away. And the second thing I want to say, and I'm pretty dogmatic about that because I've seen it so often. I love that, uh, by the way. Good. Second is, uh, something said to me this morning was a reminder uh, that you have freedom when there is nothing left to lose. <laughs> and, and the biggest blessing is standing there going, <laughs> I have nothing left to lose. I can be free and say and do and be who I needed to be my whole life, uh, the blessing would be to be able to say that before a terminal event and a painful event that could be. Uh, to do that as an uh, 18-year-old or a 25-year-old, there is no reason that we can't pass our legacy of our suffering and pain to the positive side of attach meaning to it, make it into purpose, help each other, uh, the world will change. 
And um, I just, I think that's what we're moving towards. I never realized that me and Bobby McGee would be part of this uh, <laughs> uh, interview. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Edward Gilbert, uh, a board-certified radiation oncologist and uh, author, poet, photographer, lecturer, and general humanitarian. I wonder if you have a health tip for us today. Um, yes. Uh, do what's necessary to free your soul. Whatever it is. Oh, I like that. I really like that. You know, uh, one of the things that I would recommend to anybody listening to this show is to go to Dr. Gilbert's uh, website. He's written an, an animal book. He's written a number of essays. He has music and photography. And all of these are really beautiful, poignant. And as he speaks about, they're helping to teach lessons. And uh, I was hoping that in order to show people, you know, as we understand that cancer is such a serious moment in someone's life, that if you are going through some type of a therapy, that knowing that possibly your radiation oncologist is a person like Dr. Gilbert, I wonder if you would read a poem, one of your original poems for us. Okay, uh, yeah, I just opened it up here. And, and what I want to say before the poem is, uh, don't be alone in this. Uh, use your family, your friends, your resources, your support groups. We're not meant to go through this alone. That's mm -hmm. so key. And, and the poem I have I've chosen is called My Teacher. My teacher is my friend. This he will be till our end. He tells me of this world. He is the source of pearls. He has knowledge and experience. He possesses humor and essence. He is my guide. From him I can hide. My teacher, I. Beautiful. Ah. <sighs> Christine, any thoughts representing every person? Oh, I uh, many thoughts. Many thoughts of of uh, how Ed can continue his journey of uh, helping so many in our community shift, shift and create balance through his children, his works of art, his writing. It's magnificent. That's why I jokingly said to you earlier, why did you become a doctor? <laughs> When I told you what I wanted to be, a Philly fanatic. I mean, what else? <laughs> they've gone away. I mean, they've gotten too old. I hope I haven't gotten too old, you know. <laughs> Never. I think this is just the beginning. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. It's, uh, I, I do believe there are many questions from people out there. I mean, we, we do know that, that uh, especially so many men that I've encountered, so many clients that I've encountered that, that deal or have found out that they've had prostate cancer. And, you know, it, it's uh, very much where, I don't know if it's our societal and our culture, where men don't speak about it. You know, women, if they get something, they tend to go out, they outreach to other girlfriends, things like that. But men tend to just... Yes and no. And the yes is you're right. You don't hear it much. The no is uh, there are support groups for men. And if you attend one, they they, they talk uh, much more than the women. 
So it, it's kind of like you have to get them in a safe environment yeah. and then the men will talk. Yeah, yeah. It's getting them there to that environment. Exactly. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, well summarized. Right. I'm grateful to our very special guest, Dr. Ed Gilbert, for sharing his uh, wisdom and expertise and experience with us. I'd also like to thank my teachers and all of my healers who have helped me on my journey. Thank you so much, Ed. I look forward to getting together again on Magical Medical Tour uh, next week or in the future, uh, along with Christina, where we explore another uh, quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, thanking you, Christina, and uh, all in Yoga Hub and all of our viewers, I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ed, for really honoring us with your wonderful stories and experiences. And of course, we'd like to thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for hosting this wonderful moment, and to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. We also will be bringing you new shows and new dates and times in the following months to come as we are turning into the actually uh, the Lunar New Year this Friday of the Year of the Horrors. And I'd like to remind you that you can contact Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter, at Glenn Woolman, and of course through his own site, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor, Square Breath. And you can also connect with our guests. We really recommend this highly to, to grace um, uh, uh, Ed's website. It's drgswebsite.com spelled d-r-g-s website w-e-b-s-i-t-e dot com uh, it's fascinating the amount of work that he has on it and uh, again uh, we look forward to your questions any comments that you might have you can pop them in the website as you scroll down on the screen. You can uh, type them in there and click submit, and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Or uh, you can call us at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. And please remember to leave your contact info so that we can return the call. Again, we thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to our wonderful guests and Dr. Woolman. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.